Welcome to the Elk Talk Podcast with Randy Newberg and Corey Jacobson. Presented by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. The goal is what little you and I know about elk hunting, we share with people. I've got an elk building, it's like 120 yards away, what do I do? First off, the thought would never cross my mind when an elk being 120 yards away to call anybody <laughs> on a cell phone. <laughs> All elk. All the time. Only elk. Only elk. Well, it's us having conversations. So we usually go down some rabbit holes. But if you hunt with Corey Jacobson, you will find the landscape is full of rabbit holes. We're just going to make this up as we go. And you look at it like, oh, that's a target rich environment. But if you're trying to single one out, a solo target there is much easier to go into than a, a big group. We record everything, so there's no BS and no lying, no faking it with us. <laughs> Did we hit the record I button? I forgot to hit the record <laughs> button. If you want to know something about elk hunting, this probably isn't the podcast to listen to. <laughs> Should we give them a list of all the other podcasts wow. where they might learn something? <laughs> The Elk Talk Podcast is brought to you by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, ensuring the future of elk, other wildlife, their habitat, and our hunting heritage. To become a member, go to rmef.org. The Elk Talk Podcast is also brought to you by Mountain Ops, making outdoor energy and performance nutrition to make you a stronger and healthier elk hunter. They have a full line of hunting-related supplements, including meal replacement shakes, multivitamins, pre-workout fuel, and post-workout recovery, and my favorite, their new performance protein bars that, by the way, are packed with 270 calories and 20 grams of protein, but contain less than 6 grams of sugar. Visit mountainops.com to learn more and to order, and be sure to use the promo code ELKTALK to save on your next order. The podcast is also brought to you by Gerber. Uh, go to gerbergear.com and learn about the knives, the vital, the big game vital, the Gator Premium, all the things that we use when we're out in the woods, and not just knives, but also some really cool multi-tools that they have. And we have a promo code for Gerber as well. Just use the code ELKTALK to save 20% on your orders at gerbergear.com. And we are also brought to you by Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls. And Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls is the original designer and inventor of the pallet plate diaphragm that's completely changed the way elk calls are made and used. And to find out more and to order your elk calls, go to RockyMountainHuntingCalls.com or BuglingBull.com and use promo code ELKTALK and you're going to save 15% on all of your elk calls and elk call accessories. The Elk Talk Podcast is also brought to you by GoHunt.com. Uh, go to GoHunt.com and sign up for the Insider. The Insider is changing how hunts and hunting information are found. No doubt about that. Use promo code ELKTALK, and when you do, when you sign up for the Insider, you're going to get $50 of store credit, mad money, in their gear shop. Lastly, the University of Elk Hunting online course is a proud partner of the Elk Talk podcast. And within the University of Elk Hunting online course, you're going to find nearly 60 chapters organized in 17 modules of elk hunting instruction aimed at making you a more successful elk hunter. From planning and e-scouting to calling strategies and packing 
every imaginable elk hunting topic is included in the online course. And regardless of your previous elk hunting experience or success, I'm confident the University of Elk Hunting online course will make you a more confident, more successful elk hunter. Just visit elk101.com and use the promo code ELKTALK to save 20% when you sign up for a membership to the University of Elk Hunting online course. And with that, Corey, we are ready to get into it. Let's jump into it. Hey, Corey, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. I'm sitting in the backseat of my Ford Raptor as my camera crew is checking to see if it can do 90 on the interstate. <laughs> we're, we're somewhere between Idaho Falls and Twin Falls, and I have one of the camera guys driving my truck, and the sagebrush is going by so fast that I can hardly even identify it as sagebrush. Wow. I'd, so if anything happens to the truck, you've got the cameraman there to to blame. Yeah, blame. I always blame the camera guy. Excellent. If they get speed, if they get speeding tickets, I ain't, I'm not paying for it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> not me. I I I drive like uh, Mr. Magoo. I'm I put it whatever the speed limit is. I'm two miles an hour below the speed limit. Put it on cruise, and off we go. <laughs> and if somebody gets mad i'm not going fast enough well it's not my fault they didn't get up in the morning yep if you if you can't get the mattress off your back in the morning that's not my problem <laughs> so uh, well this is a first for us we are, are recording the podcast remotely which is not uh is not new but you right. are mobile this is mobile. our first time yeah i think that yeah. we've, we've recorded it with <laughs> You in a truck driving down the freeway. Yeah. Yeah, this will be a first for that. I'm I'm on my way to Nevada for an archery mule deer hunt. And uh, I don't know why I do this. Every time I go to Nevada, I complain that it's too hot. I get dehydrated. I'm always hunting a fifth choice or leftover tag. So there's a reason that you can draw it as your fifth choice or get it as a leftover. But I just yeah. like hanging out in Nevada. <laughs> there's nobody there well you know there's a reason for that probably yeah there's a reason why there's nobody there hunting exactly yeah. so yeah. but you know what's gonna happen i'm gonna go there with a mule deer tag and i'm gonna see all these elk probably exactly yeah yeah and gonna, that's what's I'm, weird about nevada is their elk season is pretty much the same time as their early mule deer season it opens well, August 15th, I think, in most of the units for archery, and then it closes at the end of August. So you don't even, yeah. you know, we complain about Utah's season, but Nevada's yeah. even worse as far as being able to hunt the rut. Yeah, unless you're into spot and stock elk hunting. I, I know there's a couple units now where they've moved the archery season into September, but you got to be the governor or some Hollywood celebrity to to draw that tag so that rules me and you out of there i better not say that my friends in nevada will be calling me saying hey don't be start that's how rumors get started <laughs> so, no you just you just need to be really lucky or have a lot of points so yeah i'm neither so do you have nevada points i have a handful i think i'm yeah. uh, up to four or five now so oh 
Oh yeah. man, you're you're way out in front, man. Oh yeah, you'll, you'll probably draw next year. Well, you know, <laughs> there are people that do. That's the that is the nice thing about bonus uh, points over preference points is even though they're squared and somebody with twenty points has four hundred chances and I get my sixteen or twenty five, but uh, yeah. there's always a chance if your name's in the hat. Yeah, isn't there some movie where the guy says, so you're saying there's a chance? <laughs> Dumb and Dumber. Oh, okay. I have not watched the movie. I just, someone showed <laughs> me a clip of it one time. So, yeah. But isn't, isn't Donnie your sidekick? He's from Ely, Nevada, isn't he? He is. Yeah, he grew up in Ely and he, uh, he knows that country pretty well. But I think when he was there, it was before the elk had really started taking off. Yeah. And uh, by the time he moved, you know, I guess by the time the elk started picking up there and in that country, he had moved. Yeah. Well, the the spot that I'm going to has a lot of elk, thanks to the Elk Foundation. When they did that reintroduction there, uh, they made a deal with the public land grazing ranchers where they said, we'll buy this ranch. that It didn't have much deeded acreage, but it had a big grazing allotment. And we will kind of slice and dice the allotment and give it to the other public land grazers so that it'll take some pressure off the forage if elk start competing for forage. So with that deal in place, that's how elk in this part of Nevada were able to get introduced. Wow. And now, now they're... They're all over the place. They migrate into Idaho, all kinds of stuff. Yeah, yeah. If you look at some of the statistics and the demographics of the Nevada herds, they're pretty impressive with the bull to cow ratio and the overpopulation, you know, over objective in in most of the units. It's they're doing a good job of managing. Uh, on the flip side, though, it's it's really really hard to get a tag. Yeah. Well. I'm I'm hoping that I don't just get completely distracted by elk, that I find a little forky horn mule deer buck that wants to be. But my freezer's empty. So very seldom is my freezer completely empty on the opening day of deer season, of archery season, but it is this year. So if I send you a picture and it's just a little spike with a little fuzzy knob on his head, don't be heckling me. <laughs> you know i won't okay so uh you know when we were talking about what we want to do for this podcast it's a little bit of our own personal experience and then also some experience or some feedback from the questions we always get where there's a ton of questions about equipment and gear and does anyone make this or where do you find that or i see you modify this blah 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 and you and i have both had the the blessing of being able to work with companies where we start with an idea and end up with a finished product and i thought it'd be cool just kind of give the audience an idea of how that works yeah if, if you're great. open to that idea, you, you, <laughs> you, you, you've been doing this way longer than I have as far as putting products out there with your name on it. How long have you had the Elk 101 series from Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls? Ah, man, I don't know. Probably 
six years, seven really? years. Wow. Yeah. Oh, well, you could, you could do this podcast in your sleep then. <laughs> no, I mean, it, it is, you know, and I think that all of these products that we're going to talk about and, and kind of the concept in general, they all stem from a specific need. You know, we, we yep. see a, a way to make something better or we see a gap in, in the gear that we use and we say, what if we had that? That would make it a lot more comfortable or convenient or you know, whatever it is, I think there's, there's always a need and it's pretty awesome to be able to recognize that need, but then to be able to take an idea of how to fill that gap or how to, to meet that need and to have companies that are open to those ideas and excited to, to be able to manufacture them and implement them and, and then uh, for us to be able to use them in the field. Yeah. For me, I've, I've always just bought whatever was available and very often the stuff I end up using was made by a company. It was intent. It's intended use was mostly for deer hunting. And somehow I got to figure out how to adapt it to elk hunting. Uh, and so I've, since I started working on this knife project with Gerber, where they said, let's build something specific for elk hunters. Uh, I wanted to, I, I, I guess I started looking at it differently of, all right, what else is out there that was built specifically for elk hunters rather than just general hunting or deer hunting? And you elk hunters figure out a way to make this work. And uh, so that's, that's kind of some of the ideas that were bouncing around my head when I read all the, the viewer questions or listener questions. Uh, you know, one of the ones you'd mentioned was how Sika gear started was just there was no performance clothing in the outdoor space. It was the yeah, and I, I remember you know, I remember those days of literally going to Walmart, finding a t shirt for nine ninety nine and a pair of pants for fourteen ninety nine that were made out of cotton and <laughs> wearing them and i can remember stepping over you know downfalls and a stob sticking up and i jab that stob into the knee of the pants and it rips them clear down to the to the bottom of the pant leg uh shirts you know the nice thing about shirts is most of my camo shirts had the sleeves cut off or the pocket ripped off and uh <laughs> was that for toilet paper to do that. Was <laughs> exactly was, was that because you forgot your toilet paper huh that's exactly what it was. But you can afford to do that when you're using a $9 t-shirt. You know, you don't True. feel bad about it. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> you know, and I think we just made do. And, and as yep. elk hunters, you know, we're sweating like crazy. We're going up the mountain. We're napping up on the mountain during the middle of the day when it cools down. Uh, we're out after dark. And we just, we said, well, there's nothing else available. And I think yep. there was a handful of hunters that, you know, we we always probably called them yuppie hunters back then. Now we look at them and think, man, they were so much smarter than we were. But they were using yeah. mountaineering gear. They were buying gear in solid colors and hunting in it. And they're yep. probably the same people that were using, you know, the the trekking poles, the hippie sticks or whatever we called them <laughs> back then. And, you know, we sat there and laughed at them. And now we've we've literally followed them. They were 20 years ahead of us. And. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, it just Sitka gear was started because elk hunters were tired of hunting in cotton. We saw that mountaineering gear was exactly what we needed, but it just wasn't in camouflage. 
and uh, Jonathan and Jason at the time started started Sitka Gear because of that need. And it's amazing to look at what the the uh, clothing industry, the hunting clothing industry, has moved to. Now you can't. You I don't know if you can. You probably still can find cotton camouflage clothing, but I couldn't yeah. imagine buying it and hunting in it. Yeah, now I, I think about spending 100 days a year up in the hills from August hot to December cold, and I would not want to go back to doing it in the old stuff that I used to wear. No. <laughs> uh, that, that would create a level of misery that at my softness of older age, I wouldn't be able to tolerate. Yep. <laughs> uh, it just, it, it changes... You know, when you finally get it, you look back and you think, wow, how did we do it before? And we did it before. I mean, there was, there were wool jackets. There were, there were things that we did and that we used to, to get by. But when you start breaking it down, it's like, am I just getting by or am I, is gear actually contributing to my success? And it's, it's pretty amazing if you and I were to, to list out all the gear we use, most of it's contributing to our success in some way. And it's, you know, yep. you and I, I think we've talked a lot that, you know, don't go out and spend a whole bunch of money on gear if you, you know, aren't in shape or if you don't understand elk's needs. Invest in yourself first and then start adding to your gear list. But, uh, yeah, there's so many options now that are specific to elk hunters that, that do contribute yep. to success. Yeah. When when you did the movie or the film, The Linguist, you interviewed uh, your dad, uh, Wayne Carlton, Will Primos, and Larry Jones, right? Yep. Are those? And yeah, that's four. Yeah, that, that was kind of the, the start of elk-specific calls because if – if I remember right, weren't most of the early diaphragm calls just turkey calls that somebody tried to figure out how to make it sound like an elk? Yeah, you know, I think we we credit Wayne Carlton for that, that he was a turkey hunter from back east, and he came out and heard an elk bugle, and he thought, I bet you can manipulate that turkey diaphragm to make a, a sound that's similar to an elk. And so that's what he did. He came out the next year and he had a, a turkey diaphragm and, you know, he used it to try to mimic an elk. And then from there, you know, he and Larry Jones kind of about the same time started building elk specific diaphragms. And there is quite a bit of a difference in those two. And we hear it all the time. You know, a lot of the people that, that you and I interact with on the educational side are coming from back east or from a turkey or whitetail background and they want to hunt elk and it's interesting you know people say i I've, i grew up turkey hunting so diaphragms aren't anything new to me i've got that you know i'll be able to pick that up really quickly and most of them struggle quite a bit because it's completely different you know the the diaphragm construction's different the way that you use it is different and you can develop a lot of bad habits if you put an elk diaphragm in and start trying to use it the way you <laughs> use a, a turkey diaphragm. Yeah. Well, I, I must have picked up some of those bad habits then. <laughs> <laughs> but no, you, you just think about how much trial and error, prototyping, uh, uh, entre- entrepreneurial engineering 
went into what we take for granted today. I mean, you, you have told me before about growing up, built, helping your dad build out calls in the living room. Yeah, and I didn't help build them. I was just the guinea pig, and I've probably had more belt call parts in my mouth with Bondo on them and, you know, sitting there with a file and, and a piece of Bondo and just continuing to file it down until it works. And, you know, and it's amazing because we're still developing new things, new and improved things. You know, there are advancements in material that come out. There are advancements in uh, just engineering and other ideas. And you look back and think, okay, diaphragm elk calls were, you know, early 80s to mid 80s when they really started. And, you know, my dad is credited for developing the diaphragm elk call with the backing plate on it. And he got the patent on that. And, you know, it really did change how diaphragm elk calls were made. It changed how easy they were to use. It changed how long they lasted. A lot of advancements. But even from there, you know, yeah. we took, yeah, he developed that in the early 90s, I think. And so now here we are 25 years later and still improving on that and finding different latexes that last longer. Uh, one of the diaphragms, you know, the contender in the Elk 101 series, Kurt, who at the time was the general manager of, of Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls, built me over 100 diaphragms uh, <laughs> all, on the, all on the same frame just with different latex thicknesses and different latex stretches. We literally built out a, a matrix of different stretches and thicknesses on latex. And I went through, I think there were 120 of them. I went through each of those diaphragms wow. and, you know, I'd toss the one that wouldn't work. And I ended up with 10 or 12 that are like, these are really close. And then we kept dialing down from there and, and narrowing it down and finding the latex that I felt was, was optimal uh, with with the idea of making it last a long time, and yeah. from that, you know, we that's one diaphragm call, and from that, we found a lot of other uh, attributes to the latex that we were able to make more improvements to to other calls, as well as come up with some new calls. So, huh? How, so, a, how many to it? How many seasons, or how long of a period of time did that last while you were? prototyping and experimenting no uh, it took probably four to six months of oh, me okay. calling kurt and saying hey this one doesn't work but we're close can we try this and you know kurt to his credit he was wide open to anything you know he's like you tell me what you want i will go and find new latex suppliers i will find different colors of tape if you want a different color diaphragm <laughs> you know he just went through all these different options and it's awesome to work with someone like that that's just so open to your to your input and your ideas and yeah. i think that's really how how cool products get developed is you've got to be open you've got to think outside the box and you've got to try things that maybe haven't been tried before yeah i don't think you can be afraid to fail because no, if you're afraid no, if you're afraid to fail you're never going to push the boundaries of where success might be hiding yep but so just looking so that's diaphragms but then even you look at bugle tubes i mean <laughs> we all we all started with just what was you know a little piece of flexible plastic to start with and now you yep. look at the shape and the 
the sounds that they can make and how you can do different things with them. That, all that stuff just, I, I think we take for granted today because we go online and it's available to us. It'll be in our, in our mailbox in two days, but an awful lot of work and thought and idea has went into it for, specifically from an elk hunter. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you know, I think back in the mid eighties, early nineties, uh, you know, the vacuum heat, vacuum cleaner hose was kind of the the standard elk call you just find your wife's old vacuum cleaner and cut off about 16 or 18 inches of the hose on it and she'll never miss that and we've uh, we've got us a bugle tube and it sounded it sounded like what you'd expect it to sound like you know just you couldn't get a lot of tone out of it you couldn't get a lot of volume out of it and it, uh, it's it's just cool because i again you know, my dad, he was a tinker. He would sit there with Bondo and super glue and stick stuff together. <laughs> and I remember a prototype elk bugle that he had probably, again, late 80s, early 90s, where he had a, you know, probably a six or eight inch section of vacuum cleaner hose at the top. And then uh, he had got, I don't know if you remember, I don't even remember what they were called but it was some kind of a, a squeeze it bottle it had like kool-aid in it and you could freeze it i think and you twist the top off they were like a kid's drink and huh. uh they, they had grooved uh sides in the bottle it was kind of like a miniature coke bottle but it was plastic and it okay. had little grooves on the side so he'd cut the ends off of that and glued that to the end of the of the vacuum hose and then he took a shampoo bottle that was bigger at the bottom and narrowed to the top, cut the top and bottom off of that, and it kind of had a, a bell-shaped housing at the end, and he glued that on the end. And, you know, had this, just you look at it, and the original one, it was, you know, literally hot glued, super glued, bondoed, you know, and then the mouthpiece had to be expanded, and the end of it, you know, had to just have the right size opening, and, you know, did all that. And then we realized you could just buy a, a wiffle ball bat, one of the fat boy wiffle ball bats, and cut the ends off of that. And, uh -huh. man, that made a, an incredible elk bugle. And that's literally how, uh, like, the, the Bully Bull Extreme that, that we have now, which I think is just the absolute best-sounding bugle. That's how it, it was developed, from a wiffle ball bat. <laughs> Come here, son. Give me that wiffle ball bat. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure people looked at me funny when I had, you know, six different wiffle ball bats going through the checkout line of <laughs> different sizes and shapes. And I had more wiffle balls at home growing up than, than anybody knew what to do with. Uh, well, and look where it is now. It's uh, one of the best selling elk bugles out there, I'm sure. Yep. Speaking of which. And there's a lot that goes into it, you know. I mean, you look at a, a bugle tube and it's like, well, it's just you need something to broadcast that call. But yeah. having the right yeah. size opening at the bottom helps control the back pressure, which helps control the diaphragm use. Having, uh, having the neck the right size on it so it necks down and then opens up into the, into the chamber at the bottom is super important. So you get the right airflow down through that. And so all these things, being able to hit the high note and hold the high note and being able to use the diaphragm and make it easier to use is all, 
you know, the features of the bugle tube contribute to all of those things in, in using the diaphragm. So what you're saying is the guy who's not, he now heard what you said, he's going to his kid's play box and he's going to cut the ends off the wiffle ball bat and say, there, I just saved some money. He's not, he's not <laughs> going to get quite the, the uh, quality and the manipulation that he would in a diaphragm or a, a bugle tube that's been made specifically for a diaphragm call. Totally. And they work and we used them forever. You know, I've got pictures from the mid nineties of me with a orange wiffle ball bat with camouflage tape on it, <laughs> you know, and it, and it worked, but you get, you know, the plastic isn't right. So you get the plastic vibration. So it sounds plasticky. Yeah. Uh, then you can't get the neck just right. You know, there's, there's some things that have been improved upon again, specific for its intended use. Yeah. So, this experiment that you've now, you're in year six or seven with Rocky Mountain hunting calls, the listener can go and buy those calls out at RockyMountainHuntingCalls.com, right? Yeah. And if they use the promo code Elk Talk, they save. What, 15%? 15% on all their elk calls. Wow. You know, I have a I have a saying anymore that I don't want anyone to pay full retail. <laughs> So that's that's why I'm big into promo codes. Yep. I don't like people paying full retail. If if they can save ten or fifteen percent on everything they buy, that might be one extra tag they can buy this year. Absolutely, yeah. I, and I think hunters especially are very keen to discounts, and I, <laughs> I fall right into that category. I don't like to pay uh, full retail if I don't have to. Yeah. So I. Uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of ways that I I think of how elk hunting just like you were saying earlier the uh, go out you use something and after a season you say there's got to be a better way there's got to be a different way and with enough tinkering and companies that are interested in providing better solutions pretty soon here comes one of those ideas or solutions that hopefully is helpful to elk hunters yeah i'm well you just I mean i you look back at you know pictures of my grandpa he's wearing jeans he's wearing his logging boots he's wearing a, a heavy wool coat he's got a hatchet in a, in a hatchet <laughs> holster on his belt uh he's got a uh, saw you know a saw and a knife and a big sharpening stone and I'm looking at that saying that's got to be four or five pounds of gear that he's <laughs> carrying just to break down an elk. And, yep. you know, and there's still people that say, well, you have to have a hatchet or you have to have a bone saw. That's the only way you can process it. And, yep. you know, I think you and I have have learned that you don't have to have all that. Yeah. I If I try to think about how many elk I've done the gutless method on that I've shot, my family has shot, our guest hunters have shot. It's uh, it's a lot, and I've never used a saw on any of them. But I was I was with that mindset when I first started elk hunting. I thought, well, I got to split the pelvic bone. I got to figure out how I'm going to saw the head off. So I walked around with all that <laughs> stuff. 
fortunately, I didn't yep. kill many elk, so I didn't have to. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have to use all that stuff and create sharp edges on bones that would cut me. But exactly. Uh, but no, I. From, speaking of the gutless method, you know, you you can break down the whole elk just simply by carving the meat away from that pelvic bone. Yep. Um, you know, you still have to cut through the, the ligaments at the knee joints. You still have to cut through uh, the ligaments at the neck and everything, which requires sometimes a little bit more pressure and, yeah. and a specific tool, again, for, for elk hunting is is handy. Yeah, and that's, uh, that's kind of what was the genesis of my project with Gerber is uh, – I come from a trapping background and trappers are really snobs about their knives and the edge and how everything's just got to be a certain way. Well, what I found out when I was elk hunting, uh, doing the gutless method and other stuff is there's a lot of parts of an elk that are really tough on a knife. That yeah. The reason that my blades were not lasting very long or why I had to stop and resharpen all the time was that you start cutting on a hawk where there's tendon and bone. Well, tendon and bone is not favorable to any sharp edge. I don't care what quality of steel you use. And then you start doing the really thick leather where you're making the dorsal cut or something like that. Or you're trying to remove the head at the atlas joint. And I mean, the list goes on and on of all these things that elk really are tough on the cutting surface uh, of your blade and the integrity of your blade is paramount to being able to to do what you need to do efficiently so i i like gerber and andrew who was the president at the time said uh what's the worst thing about working on an elk so i walked through all these parts of what really made it tough and he asked me he said well why doesn't anyone have that I said, well, that's what I've been asking all the knife companies. Why doesn't anyone have that? <laughs> and uh, so he said, well, will you help us build that? I said, yeah, sure. So May of 2017, three years ago, they flew me out to their plant in Oregon. And for three years, they pretty much gave me the disposal of their designers and their engineering team. And... I went through kind of the process you were talking about with the uh, the calls. We went and took every knife they had, every knife their competitors had. We went down to a Cabela's store nearby, and we bought a whole shopping cart full of knives. And they had me bring them back to where all their engineers were in this room. And we went through every one of them, and I'm like, that's no good because of this. I don't want that because of that, da-da-da. And... Uh, through a, a lot of prototyping. Did you know that they can 3D print a knife? They sent me 3D prints. Like, they print them on a 3D printer to determine all the ergonomics. I'm like, wow. yeah. So it was just an incredible process. And I think engineers and accountants aren't uh, – and, and uh, don't take this the wrong way, Corey, because I know you're an en- I know you're an engineer, but I think engineers look at accountants as though they are the most particular SOBs on the planet. When really, I'm I'm not that particular, except when it comes to gear. 
then I'm like this nitpicking accountant. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So we started the idea that we were just going to have an exchangeable blade system that would be really, really strong because most of the exchange blade systems I've used, and I've used them all, did not withstand the forces that you sometimes put on those scalpel blades when you're doing an elk, especially yeah. the if you're getting in between on the knee joints and you're digging down in there to cut some of those tendons, or if you're doing the atlas joint at the head. It just There was a whole list of things where it, it was hard. And so they would send me these exchange blade systems and we kept working about what type of blades, what type of handles, all this stuff. That process took the better part of a year. And then they asked me, they said, do you think we could do something similar on the same principle with a folding knife? And I said, well, we can, but we got to make sure that we have a tool or something else that protects the integrity of the main cutting blade. So I'd like to take credit for it, but their engineers are the ones who came up with this. They call it a tendon tool. And really what it is, it's a super hard steel, super sharp, with a chiseled and beveled serrated edge to it that you can get in there and remove the the hide around the burr of an antler, do the atlas joint, do the tendons. You can do those so quick with that tendon tool and you're not dulling up your main cutting blade in the process. So once we started working on that, it kind of had the same parallel to the exchangeable, we call it EBS, exchange blade system, how that has a serrated blade and then two other traditional cutting blades. The idea is use a serrated blade for all the things that will ruin the edge of your knife. And then you get way more longevity out of your knife. And you're not going to cut yourself with a dull knife. I've read some stats somewhere that most cuts are made with a dull knife rather than a sharp knife. I don't know if that's true or not. Well, no, and you you just look at, I've been a, a guilty of it myself if you have a dull knife you you force it you pry you yeah. dig in and push it and try to get leverage and you aren't using it the right way and a lot of times you end up pulling towards yourself or pushing harder and then it when it does slip you've got way more force behind it and you know yeah. i've seen some pretty nasty things happen with the knife trying to use it inappropriately which usually means it's it's dull yeah So that was the idea with both of these is let's have a blade that does the, I call it the dirty work, the bones, the tendons, the really thick leather, the muddy hide, the, the burr at the antler, the atlas joint, and let's abuse the serrated blade or the tendon tool for that. And then your, your cutting blade should last at least three elk that was our design was all right it's got to last for at least three elk and so that's a function of blade angle what type of steel what type of treatment to it i i had no idea there was that much science that went into all this stuff and they would they would send me uh, uh i i don't know how many prototypes but baskets of them I had at home and like just the brittleness they uh, or 
lack of brittleness. We were trying to find that in between. And I'd take the blade and I'd tap it on the antler of elk to see if I could chip the blade to see if it was too brittle. And uh, every once in a while, it's like, yeah, that's got a really great edge to it. But guess what? It's too brittle. I'd send it back. And their engineers are probably thinking, what does this guy do? Take him and put him in a vise and hit him with a hammer or something? <laughs> but So we ended up finding these sweet spots. And there's, there's a couple things on there that people will notice is I hate having a pocket clip on my hunting knife because it digs into the palm of my hand. And the first thing I told the engineers is, or I told the whole team is if you guys put a pocket clip on this, I'm, I'm out of here because so many times after a couple hours working on an elk, that pocket clip is augering into your palm of your hand. And I, so I asked them, I said, why do, why does every hunting knife on the shelf at Cabela's or Bass Pro or Sportsman's, why do they all have pocket clips? And the engineer said, you'll have to ask the sales team about that. <laughs> so I asked the sales guys, and they said, because the buyers at the big box stores demand a pocket clip on every knife. Not because it has any utility, not because it creates any value. It's because the buyers who buy the knives at the big box stores want a pocket clip. And I'm in my head, I'm thinking, I wonder how many gutless method done elk those guys have done. But I didn't probably ask. None. They, probably, they probably have the uh, belt loop on their, hat, <laughs> on their hatchet scabbard as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I don't want to pick on the buyers of the big box stores. But for me, that when I asked that right up front, it kind of gave me a, a bit of a revelation of, you know what, there's a lot of things that we end up buying as hunters that probably have no practical purpose to that, to some feature on the end product. And I don't want that. I told them, I do not want a pocket clip. And so they're like, all right, it won't have a pocket clip because then it, it can be ambidextrous then. And there, there's all kinds of benefits. Plus it saves like 40 or 50 cents, which not that anyone's going to worry about 40 or 50 cents, but it just, I don't know. And then, uh, the other thing is I told them, I am tired of losing my knives up on the mountain, even though they're, they're orange at night, I lay it down and I still can't see it. So Gerber does some stuff for the military with this retro reflective tape kind of looking stuff. That's a real technical term, isn't it? Tape kind of yeah, looking stuff. Yeah, that, that's an accountant's, <laughs> that's accountant version of engineering language there. Uh, <laughs> so it's retro reflective where not only does it reflect the, the headlamp, but it reflects it back to the source of the light. So I've been going to all these trade shows and all this, you know, talking, doing uh, interviews with knife writers and stuff. And I think of all the work we put into that, the one that seems to be the most common response of, why didn't anyone think of that before, is the retro reflective tape. So I'm thinking by next year, every knife company out there is going to have some sort of retro reflective tape on their knives. But. <laughs> 
And I wish I could take credit for it. I just said I, I want something like that. But again, the Gerber engineers are the ones who came up with the idea. So but it was a fun thing to do. I, I've often wondered, and I think both you and I interact with enough people where we always hear the guy or gal who says, I've got this great idea, so I'm going to get rich with this someday. But an idea to an end product is there's a whole lot of distance, a whole lot of mileage to cover between the idea and getting it to an end product. Yeah. I I didn't appreciate how much work went into it. Well, and you just, you get an idea. And I think for a lot of people that don't have maybe an engineering or manufacturing background, uh, a lot of those ideas can't physically be be manufactured they just can't be done and i think that that's what ends up stopping a lot of great ideas is you know to manufacture especially on a on a mass production scale they can't be done but with that being said i think that's what becomes really fun is to take an idea that can't be done and find a way to to do it or do something similar to it. And that's what's fun is when you get to work with somebody that's open to that and they don't come back and just say, that can't be done. They say, you know, it can't be done the way we're used to doing it. So we're going to have to find another way to do it. And, and I think that's where these ideas, the, the creative ideas become really exciting to work on. Yeah, so they uh, went the first week I was there. I think I was there three or four days. <clears throat> they had all these different use cases for an elk hunter and what they used their knife for. What were the problems? What would we try to solve? And by the time we got done, the number of things I wanted solved, I didn't realize I was I had that many problems <laughs> with elk hunting knives. It's like, man, I'm a sniveler, and. Uh, So I told them, I said, well, if you can solve all those problems, this knife is going to cost $500. I said, well, that's our, you know, we got to solve that problem. You don't worry about that. You just, you tell us what every, I don't care if it's a big problem or what you think is a little problem. Let's get it on the board here and let's solve every one of them if we can. And uh, so after I told them the $500, they said, well, we got to keep it under 200 to be in the ballpark that anyone would want to buy it. <laughs> and and then they come up. Then when it's all done this spring, they tell me, yeah, we're going to retail it for $60. <laughs> I'm like, $60? That's like something you get in a Cracker Jack box, man. Come on. But, oh, well. Yep. That's that's how it goes. Well, I'm sitting here. I've got, you were kind enough to uh, have Gerber send me uh, each of these. And I know you've been working on this for a long time because you told me yeah. it's been a year and a half, two years ago, something like that, that you were working on an elk hunting knife with Gerber and I kept begging to see it. And you kept saying, well, we don't even have prototypes <laughs> yet. We're still in, you know, coming up with all these ideas and everything. <laughs> but um, I think, you know, so, for me, I've always used the exchangeable blades, uh, you know, the, yep. the Gerber Vital has been kind of my go-to just because you always have a sharp blade. You're able to, in, you know, it's inexpensive to just grab a new blade and, and put it on there. And so that's been yep. my my tool. But now looking at the, the EBS, the exchangeable blade system that you developed with Gerber, I've got it right here. And it's the same concept. 
you know it's it's really similar in concept to like the the Gerber Vital Big Game Knife but the cool part the I, other than the design I mean the handle and everything feels great but it comes with three blades that are specific to like you've been talking about different needs and for me I can use the the Gerber Vital to do a whole elk but those little thin blades, when you get in and start digging into the ligament or trying to, to force it up the neck of the elk, uh, if you're caping it, those, they just aren't ideal. They, you know, they're far from ideal. No. And I usually end up breaking a blade or two if I have to do that and, and if I force it. So with this system, it, you know, it comes in a handy little pack. The knife snaps right onto the pack. You have the blades right there. It uh, it solves all of those problems. So I'm super excited to put that to use. Yeah, well, if you cut yourself, don't call me. <laughs> <laughs> but no, the one of, one of the ideas behind that was I I told these guys, and this gets back to our our comment about deer gear designed for deer hunters and elk hunters trying to make it work. I told them how much force sometimes you have to put on a, a knife blade for elk and why the Gerber, the Little Vital, and why the Havilons and the others, they just break. They break a lot when you're doing elk where they won't when you're doing deer because everything is a mini scale, tougher, thicker, demands even more sharpness. So there, if someone can put lateral force on those blades on that ebs and break it they're tougher than i am which well that's not saying much i drive a desk for a living but <laughs> uh the the odds are you're you're gonna put all the pressure you want on those blades and you're never gonna break them and if one of them gets dull you can run it through a pull-through sharpener and you'll be back in business so they're they're replaceable blades not disposable blades yeah so that was another one of the things and you, you can tell just by their thickness by their length they're designed for elk not deer and uh so they sent me all different versions of those also longer shorter thicker fatter you name it and uh so i guess we'll see maybe yep. people say you know what newberg you don't have a clue what you're doing man you just you just ruined the Gerber in the course of one project. You ruined ruined the brand name of Gerber. Congratulations! <laughs> I don't. Uh, think I doubt it. Worry about that. Yeah. Yeah. But, so, well, so enough about. Uh, well, no, you you mentioned uh, discounts and and promo codes. Yeah, I'm uh, guessing yeah. that the Gerber promo code applies to these new knives as well. It does. You get 20% off if you go to GerberGear.com and you use Elk Talk as the promo code. Man, that's a heck of a deal. 20% off. Yeah, so now all of a sudden this $60 knife is 48 bucks. Yep. I mean, you need to buy three of them at that price. Just <laughs> because. And uh, let's see. Through August 19th, Gerber's been given 10% of the proceeds to RMEF also. Wow. So, yeah. So, anyhow, hopefully people will go there and let me know what they think. And uh, they'll probably say, Newberg, just shut down your engineering ideas right now, pal. <laughs> Stick to accounting. <laughs> I uh, don't think so. Uh, so, uh, moving on from product right now, 
you uh you seeing these pictures of these elk rubbing the velvet like i am the last few days yeah i've seen uh, some pictures on instagram of some fresh rubs and uh you know we spent quite a bit of time this past week we did a little family vacation and went up to some of my old stomping grounds that's you know definitely in elk country and uh I didn't see any fresh rubs, but again, I wasn't looking specifically for it, but we're at, we're at that time of year. Yeah. Hard to believe that we are, well, a whole nother cycle. Elk have grown their antlers. They're shedding the velvet. And when's your first elk hunt? Late August? Yeah, we're going we're gonna to hunt. September? Yeah, we're going to hunt the opener in Idaho, which is August 30th. And that's the date Donnie shot his bull last year here in Idaho. And we're, uh, you know, it, it opens on a Sunday this year. So we're going to have a couple days before that we're going to be able to scout and hopefully have a couple bulls oh. located. You know, they're still going to be, my guess is they're going to be, uh, off by themselves, probably not with the herds for the most part, although last year Donnie's bull was with cows. Uh, but if we can just, I love hunting bulls when you can, if you can get them located, if they'll bugle just once or twice uh, in that early season, I love slipping in and, and getting them fired up. So, you know, it's going to be hot weather. It's sure. going to be uh, long days, but I'm excited. Okay. Can we expand on that? Because going through all of our listener questions, we've had a bunch of them about early season setups and tactics. So you're from what I gathered, what you just said there, if you can get a bull to respond in, say, September 1st, you get as close as possible. And you just even though there's he may not have cows, you're just trying to get him in the in the moment or get him worked up. Yeah. So, you know, those, and I think maybe stepping back a little, we talked about, you know, the cycle, we've gone through a cycle, they've grown their antlers, they've, they've shed their antlers, grown their antlers. Now they're, they're shedding the velvet off of it. Um, bulls will, will spend the summer together in bachelor groups and they're typically at higher elevations than where you'll find the cows uh, throughout the summer. And they tolerate each other and you'll find anywhere from, you know, two to 15 or 18 bulls together during the summer and they keep their yep. distance. They, they absolutely have a pecking order and they know which bulls are the dominant bulls even during that time, but they tolerate each other. But about the, the first part of August, they start getting ready for the rut and they get some more testosterone pumping. Uh, they've got to get their neck built up to, to be able to fight. Uh, they rub the velvet off of their antlers. And I think that's kind of that first, when they start rubbing the velvet off of their antlers, that is, uh, that tells me they've triggered the pre-rut. They, they are, uh, they're getting more testosterone and they don't tolerate each other. They don't want to be around each other. They, they, you know, they, yeah. they realize these are my enemies now. And so they move off into what I call staging areas. And it's just each bowl will go off by themselves. And sometimes, you know, the raghorns, the smaller bulls, they'll still stick together. They aren't into that mode yet. But most of your more mature bulls, about the 1st to the 10th of August, are going to start moving off by themselves. And okay, when they do that, they get in these little pockets and they don't move. They, you know, they've got food, water, it's usually on a north face on a bench, and they will sit there and they will rub 20 or 30 different trees over the course of the next 10 to, to 20 days. 
in that little pocket. And during this time, they aren't huh. concerned about finding cows. They want to be left alone, and they're just getting ready for the rut. And if I can find a bull in his staging area, in his bedroom, I get excited because he's not been harassed <laughs> all summer. He, you know, he hasn't had other hunters pushing him around. His guard's kind of down. Uh, he doesn't have cows, but he's kind of interested in cows. But the really cool part is he does not want the company of another bull. He does not want another bull around. And so if I can get that bull really? just to, to fire off, just let out a, a bedded little weak whiny bugle or a couple chuckles or even just a groan, I can move in close yep. and I can get him to do that again. You know, if he'll do it once on August 30th, he'll do it again. And it might take 20 or 30 minutes of me sitting there cow calling. Um, but I'm trying to get him to talk at that point. I'm trying to be within 200 yards of him. And if he'll talk and I hammer him with a challenge bugle, it is the absolute yep. most efficient time of year to get that bull to just lose his mind and come in to fight. He does not want you near really? his bedroom. And yeah, I've, I've had some crazy aggressive account encounters uh, during those last few days of August through about the, the 5th of September, if I can find those bulls in their staging area. So, so I'm going to follow up with some more of the questions we get then. People are asking, do you bugle then? Are you cow calling? It sounds like you're doing whatever it takes to get him to respond. Yep. And so, you know, it takes a lot more patience. It's not just a matter of me being mobile now and getting on a ridge and bugling and giving it 90 seconds and then moving to the next vantage point. If I think there's a bull there, if I have trail cameras out that tell me there's a bull there, if I found bulls there on previous years during the pre-rut, I'm going to go back to those areas and I'm going to be super patient. I might stand there for 20 minutes, giving out a couple cow calls, giving out a location bugle, giving out a whine. And then if I get a response huh. when I move in and I can't get another response, I'll sit right there knowing that bull did not move. If he hasn't winded me, he's right there. He's just sitting there quiet. And so I'll do the same thing. I will cow call. I'll give out a, a little whiny bugle. I'll yeah. rake a tree and raking a tree. And you have to be super uh, aware because a lot of times those bulls will come sneaking in. And we've had it happen in that early season where they literally will come in. They'll take 10 steps and they'll stand there for 10 minutes. And then they'll take 10 more steps huh. and they'll stand there for 10 minutes. And it sometimes takes 30 or 40 minutes. But if you hear a branch pop, if you hear a couple footsteps, if you hear brush breaking, you know he's on his way. And you have to just be super uh, aware of what the wind's doing. You have to be set up in a good position. You have to be watching for movement because they're coming in wary. You know, maybe we didn't trip the trigger on him and he's not ready to fight. And he's coming in silent. Yeah, but. We've shot multiple bulls during that first week of season here in Idaho uh, with them coming in silent or with us tripping that trigger and them coming in as, as aggressive as they would three weeks later. Wow. So, yeah, obviously, it's always helpful to have a caller and a shooter no matter what time of year. But if they're coming in silent like you're explaining, that's really helpful then to have a shooter out in front of you. Definitely. And paying attention because if they do come in silent, they're typically going to circle around and get the wind in their favor before they come in. So making sure that that shooter is set up on the, the downwind side of the collar is, is going to be really important. Yeah. And then if you trip his trigger and he responds, 
what do you do once he responds? You just lay it right back at him? Yep. Yeah, and that's, that's you know, a lot of people, because you don't hear much bugling that first week of, of September. You just, you know, there's not as many elk that are fired up. They aren't as vocal, especially on their own. Uh, it's hotter, so a lot of times they're bedded down, and they just aren't aggressive in their in their bugling. But if you can get in close, especially on a bigger, mature bull, when you challenge him, it's just, it's an automatic reaction. He just, his eyes roll back and he gets up and he doesn't even know why he's doing it. His feet are just moving one in front of the other down the hill, plowing down the hill, coming in saying, you are way too close to my area. I don't want you here. I don't want your company. And he's coming down the hill to, to tell you to leave. And it just, I've had some crazy aggressive encounters where he will bugle 10 or 12 times coming down the hill into into that setup. And we've had other occasions wow. where where the bull will still bugle, but he's a lot more timid in his bugle. You know, Donnie's bull last year, he was bugling on his own 10 o'clock in the morning on August 30th with cows. And we coaxed him wow. across the draw with cow calls. And he answered the cow calls pretty consistently, but he was it wasn't a fired up, like I want to fight you bugle. It was a just a slower more drawn out communication bugle and we just kept coaching yeah. him in with with the cow calls he didn't come up the hill that morning huh. but that night we got back on him got him to bugle again worked in with the cow calls again he was coming up just slowly taking his time probably you know eating his way up the hill but as he got within about 150 yards i knew we were we were very limited on time and yeah. so once he responded i hammered him with a challenge bugle and within about 90 seconds, he was in Donnie's shooting lane. <laughs> uh, you make that sound so easy, Corey. You know, it's, <laughs> it's not easy, but if you can just imagine what the elk's thinking and try to trip his trigger, it uh, it takes a lot of the confusion and the, the frustration out of elk calling sometimes. Yeah. Well, I, you listening to you explain that scenario knowing how aggressive you usually are having to try follow you through the hills sometimes uh when you said you got to be patient that's a that's a shift of gears for you <laughs> that's like downshifting it's like put locking in the hubs for you it is i might be able to i might be able to keep up with you most of the time then on august 30th but by <laughs> september 10th I'm just a boat anchor for you. Uh, uh, and it is. You know, we we definitely, the concept's the same. We're still trying to get that bull to fight. We're still trying to trip his trigger. But we have, the way we approach it has to be different. He's not as fired up. He's not as vocal. Uh, if we bump him, if we mess that setup up, it might be two days before we find another bull that will talk to us. Whereas on September 15th, I have a lot more confidence that, hey, if we get aggressive here and mess this up, we'll go over the ridge and get another one to bugle, and we'll have another encounter. Yeah. During that early season, you do have to be more patient. You have to You have to apply a little bit more finesse because – you have to be a lot more efficient. You have to uh, take advantage of those opportunities because in that week's hunt, we might only get three or four opportunities. And so we do have to oh, wow. have to be a lot more careful. Huh. So where you're, if, I mean, I know everything is somewhat dependent upon the scenario, the landscape, the situation, but when you're finding elk in late August, 
early September, you know, September 1st, 2nd, 3rd, whatever. Are you finding them staged somewhere near the cows or is it just these habitual places where for whatever reason they go to this little knob and they just beat the heck out of those poor little spruce or pine trees for two weeks and they are there no matter what? Or is it somewhat dependent upon a proximity to the cows? You know, I, I think that they are staging themselves in an area that will allow them to go out in search of the cows, but it's, I think it's more habitual. We find them higher elevations uh, where it's a little cooler. Uh, it's almost always on a north face bench where they like to bed down, either a bench or a, a nice flat spot on a ridge. Yep. And a lot of times, you know, during elk season, you're walking along and you're like, oh my goodness, this is this is the place. This is where the rut happens. There's 30 rubs right here and you get all excited. But I rarely find rut rubs that are that concentrated. If I find 30 rubs that I can see within view of each other, yep. I mark that spot. And it's like, this is the bull's bedroom. I am coming here first week of September next year, and I will find a bull, and he'll answer me. Huh. And so I think it is more habitual where they go, they know the area, they, they know that they have food, water, security, everything there. And, you know, it's, it's probably in closer proximity to the cows than where they spent their summer, but I don't go looking for the cows uh, during that early season. Good, good, good to know, because I, I, I see these places when I'm out rifle hunting, I'll walk through a spot. I'm like, look at this. There's 12 rubs within 30 yards right here. And in my mind, I'm thinking I should be here September 15th. Really what you're saying is, no, Randy, you want to be there September 1st. Yep, because by September 15th, when they go out in search of the cows and where they actually rut, it could be 10 miles away from there. Wow. Typically, it's not that far in, you know, the mountain states, the Idaho, the Montana, the the uh, Wyomings. Typically, it's going to be within a, a mile or two of where the cows are. They're going to be staged there. Uh, but, man, it can – I've seen bulls completely vacate an area – going in search of the cows or going to where they know they've found the cows in the past. And it can be a long, long ways from where you find them in the summer. Wow. Well, that's cool. I've, I've never, I'll be honest with you. I view late August, early September. That's why you hunt mule deer and antelope because it's too hot. So <laughs> the amount of elk hunting that I've done on September 1st, is really really low because grouse season opens everywhere on september 1st also so i'm uh, i'm usually heavily heavily distracted at that time but that's really good <laughs> stuff i'm i'm uh i'm taking notes on that hopefully the listeners are too well, and we're going to, we'll put it to the test again this year. Last year, we uh, we only hunted those first two days of the season in Idaho, and then we got ready to head to Oregon. This year, we're, we're switching it around, and we're going to hunt Idaho early and go to Oregon a little later for uh, for our Roosevelt hunt. So, okay. We've got, uh, got some stuff we're looking forward to for sure. So, when you go do the Roosevelt, will that be in the peak rut later in September? Uh, yeah, it'll be, I would say before the peak rut, okay. um, where, you know, the actual dates that we're going to be in Oregon, 
uh, are no. going to be about five or six days later than, than what we've went in the past. We're going to be hunting like the 10th through the 19th this year. Okay. And so, you know, that, that's my favorite week to hunt elk. Uh, as far as Rocky Mountain elk. Yeah. And in talking to Shannon and Corey, you know, with Angry Spike Productions, we're going to hunt with them again, uh, as well as Dave Brinker, who, you know, has spent his life hunting Roosevelt elk. The later in the season you can go, the better the the calling action's going to be. I think the concern is the later in the season you go, the more moisture you can expect, the more rain. And <laughs> I, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to time it here. I'm getting the most out of the calling action and avoiding as much rain as possible. <laughs> uh, Roosevelt elk and rain. Yeah. I'm going in November for Roosevelt's and uh, <laughs> everybody has told me, I hope that you bring your... Uh, pfd and your dog paddling skills because you're you're gonna feel like a frog um oh well yep i gotta say that from what i've understood august is really nice first part of september is really nice and then it turns into fall and winter weather which is pretty much expect rain every day and if it doesn't rain it's wet enough from the rain the day before that you're going to get just as soaked all day. <laughs> uh, well, when you're out doing that, I'll be in Idaho chasing Rocky Mountain elk. So we'll see how that and you're goes. Gonna be hunting, uh, you're going to be hunting with Kurt, right, from yep. Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls? Yep. yep. Yeah, we're going to yep. grab some llamas and head on into the backcountry of Idaho. And uh, we both have elk tags, but... I like the limit, the grouse number limit in Idaho. <laughs> I can get an extra grouse every day there. So he'll, he'll probably call you after that hunt and say, this guy's got problems, man. How do you hang out with him? And you'll yeah. tell him, you'll say, well, that's why I quit hunting with him in September. <laughs> <laughs> I need to send him the, uh, the link to the, to the video from when I hunted with you in Montana several years ago and, yeah, I think if he watches that, he'll at least get an idea of how distracted you get when a grouse yeah. is sitting in front of us. Yeah, he'll at least be slightly prepared, anyhow. So, but so then uh, it won't be long, Corey. It'll be peak rut, like yeah, like peak peak rut, and I'm going to be in Wyoming then. Man, that makes me uh, a little jealous. I that's why I said that. I wanted to make you a little jealous. <laughs> you know i uh i and and i i say this um completely taking full blame for it but we did that hunt giveaway with mountain ops this year yeah and uh the the dates that it just happened to work out are the 24th through the 29th of september Mm. So my peak rut experience this year will be in a phenomenal place in Utah with a whole bunch of elk, but uh, I'll be carrying a bugle tube and not carrying a weapon. I'll be doing the calling for the winner of the hunt. You'll be doing your civic duty. Yep, that's right. Uh, and the whole time thinking about you in Wyoming and <laughs> the experiences I've had during that time frame in Wyoming during archery season. Well, we'll see how it goes. I I hope it goes well. You never know. Hopefully I don't get eaten by a grizzly bear, but 
There's, you know, you, you see how many follow-up questions we got on the podcast that we did oh my goodness a while yeah. back about hunting in grizzly country it almost seems like we need a version 2.0 of that to answer the follow-up questions but yeah i think we, we what we tried to do was give people confidence to hunt in grizzly areas or at least you know dispel some of the myths and I think what we did was created a whole lot more concern and and uh, questions about that. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it was. We got a lot of follow up questions from that. Yeah, well, I was looking at some of them and I thought about emailing the people, and then I said, you know what, Randy, you're getting out of your lane here. You know, <laughs> I I don't know anything about puncture wounds. I don't know anything about reattaching someone's scalp with super glue or whatever so. <laughs> what's the best first aid kit to carry in the event that we end up getting attacked or mauled and yeah but no i i think that was helpful and i i appreciate that so many people send us these questions and that's why i when you started down this path of early season elk hunting I wanted to probe that a little further because we've had so many questions about it. Uh, and I'm not the guy. You're the guy to answer those questions. So I just sit up here and serve up the pitch. You get to hit the home run. So, <laughs> Well, just, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's like anything. It Nothing is 100%. In the early season, uh, your opportunities are much more limited. And, you know, it's, it can be really frustrating. You know, this year we've got the full moon during that first week. We've got hot weather. We've got long day, you know, long daylight hours. A lot of things that are working against us and can cause a lot of frustration. So you, you have to go into that hunt prepared for those frustrating obstacles. And, uh, you know, I think we're doing a lot of scouting right now. We're going out looking for sign, looking for those those bulls bedrooms. Uh, they're going to be showing up in those bedrooms any day right now. So we don't want to be out there tramping through the middle of them necessarily. Yeah. But with that being said, we do get a lot of questions. You know, how close can we get to these bedroom areas? How, how much scouting should we do? we be doing how much scent is going to blow the elk out of there you know i i just i really don't worry too much about that i'm not going to be careless in it i'm going to be quiet i'm not going to be out there bugling i'm not going to be out there singing or you know walking around with with bear bells on my ankles or anything <laughs> What? Bear bells on your looking. ankles, huh? <laughs> Isn't that what you're supposed to do? You wear wear bells around your your uh, ankles, and every step you take, they go off and scare the bears out of there? Yeah, I've heard that, but I, I don't own any bear bells, so. <laughs> but uh, uh, with this stuff that you've talked about in the early season, if people want a deeper dive to that, do you cover that in your University of Elk Hunting course? We do, yeah. So there's a, you know, your your module on late season and post rut, there's a lot of helpful information on there for early season as far as, you know, what the elk are needing, what they're looking for during that that phase of the rut. But then we do, we go into hunting on full moon, hunting with uh, heat, um, early season tactics and you know there, there's just a lot of information that can be gleaned from a lot of different modules in the course that apply to early season specifically 
And, uh, you know, I think just keeping in mind the, the strategy that I use during the rest of the rut is the same strategy I use during the early season. It's just, again, as, as I mentioned, that approach has to be uh, a little more fine-tuned and a little bit more patience applied to locating the elk. Um, but man, once cool. you, once you get a bugle there, I get so excited any time of, of the year when I hear an elk bugle, but that first week of September, if I can get a bull to bugle, I just, I just know that the efficiency of being able to call that bull in and potentially get a shot is way higher than probably any other time. I would say that the 10th through the 15th is another time frame when it's really fun because they're starting to bugle more. They're on the move, so you know you aren't able to find them as easily. But, man, when you find them, they're very aggressive because they're establishing that dominance. They're trying to establish their herds, and uh, they want to fight. So... <laughs> Well, uh, I would say that's probably my favorite time, but that first week of September is a close second to it. Well, if, if anybody wants to see the look of mischief, they should be with Corey Jacobson when a bull responds to his calling. I don't know if you've ever seen a picture of yourself when you get this look on your face <laughs> of excitement and smile as if you're pointing to that elk and saying, victim number one, right there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, <clears throat> that's what we live for when it comes to elk hunting i just there is there's nothing like that yeah. thrill of interacting vocally with elk yeah. so backing up where people can sign up for the university of elk hunting at elk101.com yeah so just go to elk101.com and click on the link for the online course and uh, once again promo code if you use the promo code elk talk it's going to save you 20 percent when you sign up cool so you're talking about betting on north facing slopes and what no matter what slope it is that they're betting i used to okay i'm, I'm gonna age myself a little bit here by saying that i grew up so accustomed to two-dimensional paper topo maps, I thought that I could always see what the slope, what the grade, what what would be a good betting slope for elk just by looking at it, the topo lines on a two, two-dimensional map. Well, along comes this 3D mapping from Gohan, <laughs> and now I feel like I'm in confession because when they were telling me about 3D mapping, I was telling them, eh, that's eh, no big deal. Well, now I'm looking at my e-scouting plans that I've been doing the last few weeks. And with 3D maps, you can see those little undulations where it is a little bit of a bench that is definitely enough for a couple elk to bet on, but not anything that's perceptible in a 2D topo view. Now, all yep. of a sudden, you see it in 3D. You're like, oh, look at that. And this, is, this isn't this is Randy Newberg making up a statistic. This comes from the Starkey Experimental Forest Studies. There's two things that people really need to know when it comes to bedding elk. They prefer to bed somewhere between the crest and the top third of a slope, at least the elk that were studied at the Starkey Experimental Forest. And they prefer to bed on a slope that is less than 20 degrees. 
Well, with 2D mapping, my mapping, I can't quite sort that out. But now with Gohan's 3D maps with the line tool, I can go from the bottom of the slope to the top of the slope, and it tells me, oh, that's 900 feet. I know I'm going to focus on that top third, so that top 300 feet. And then I can fly around and see where is the slope actually a little flatter that might not look like it in a 2D map. Is that 2D? Yeah, we'll call it 2D. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and so I had to call the Gohan guys and say, all right, I was wrong. 3D does have a lot more value than I gave you credit for. So now that I've yep. done that. I was just going to say, Chris called me in, in March or April, you know, once we found out that they were working on a, a maps platform and, you know, just talking about time frames. And he said, it's going to be so hard for us to get 3D in time for hunting season. How important is it? And I told him right then, it is everything. For me, I mean, my process in the past has been I scour Google Earth. I scour it. I look for those little indentions. I look for those little black spots. I look for those places where I think that right there is an exact location where a bull elk could bed. And from there, I put a, you know, a place mark and then I would export it into my mapping software on my, on my phone and be able to walk right to it. Yeah. And when he started talking about all the features that they were dumping into their new mapping, uh, and he asked, how important is 3D? I said, man, it will be a game changer if I can have 3D maps on my phone that I've already scouted at my desktop and put the, the waypoints on them and be able to walk right out in the woods and see in 3D right there from my phone. And it's so exciting that they, that they have it done and ready. Yeah. Well, I, I feel like grandpa driving his two-wheel drive truck still. Uh, <laughs> I, I, really, I feel that stupid because I told him just the opposite. Ah, it'll be nice, but I trust me. I, 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 there's nothing that I can see on a 2D map that, or that I will see on a 3D map I can't, that I can't find on a 2D map. Oops, wrong. <laughs> oh well you know even the old dog has to learn a new trick once in a while so it's uh, yep. <laughs> for me it's it's really opened my eyes and i'm looking at how my waypoints are stacked now and i i did a an episode a youtube episode on this i think we're going to launch it this week is also the elevation bands and this is for me who does a lot of rifle hunting i know the transition zone is from well, and I'll use my, in that video, I use an example of Colorado where I'm going for a first rifle hunt, starts October 10th. Okay. I know the summer range is above 11.5. I know the winter range is down between seven and 8,000. So with their elevation bands, now I can just click on certain elevation bands and it highlights that. And when you do that, you realize how much of your unit just got eliminated. And you yep. can now just focus on the whatever the elevation is, the transition zone. So if it's uh, a warm October, I know they're going to be towards the top of that transition zone, probably ten to 11,000 feet. If there's been snow, I know they're going to be towards the lower end of that transition zone, maybe 9,000, maybe even down to 8,000. So I kind of have these bands of waypoints based on elevation band that I can just click on. Yeah, I want this elevation. Boom, 
there it is. And uh, it's made my e-scouting quicker. And I think, I guess we'll find out if it's more effective or, or uh, if I come up with better e-scouting plans. Uh, I think I have. Uh, especially when you add in those things like 3D because, you know, and when I'm doing these hunts and post-rut in late season, it's a glassing game. And I am looking for where are those places that I know they're going to bed. And then with their line tool, I can put a mark where I think I is the best glassing point. And I just kind of do this radius. And the line tool stays really bright until it hits a ridge line. And then it's kind of showing you, oops, you couldn't see over that ridge from the glassing point that you're trying to put put your mark on. And it really gives me this perspective of what will I be able to see from that spot based on where all these less than 20 degree slopes are in the upper third of a slope. Uh, I'm feeling like these elk are in trouble. But I've said that yep. before. I've, <laughs> I've been pretty proud of myself before, only to have my tail between my legs in a big hurry. But so. <laughs> oh well. No, I'm but. the same. It's it's added uh, an excitement to e scouting. I always get excited. I, I love finding new yeah. areas and new pockets. But just having this capability now is is really. Yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited for August 30th now. I'm not like I'm, I'm not before, but I've got a whole bunch of places to check out. Yeah. Well, again, go to Go Hunt, sign up for the Insider, and now you get 3D maps in addition to all the other stuff that always came with the Insider. And if you use promo code ELKTOK, they're going to give you $50 gift card in their gear shop. Almost, you can't yeah, afford you, all the. Yeah, I mean, for that price and that kind of discount, you got to sign up your friend and your brother. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. No, and it's uh, you know, you, you get all of the original features from Insider, all of the you know draw odds and all of that. But now, this added mapping feature, which is just yeah huge, yeah comes no as part additional of that cost. So, so promo code Elk Talk going to give you $50 of money back to spend in their store. So, so uh, you want to know my other experiment I've been doing this summer? You, this probably doesn't apply to you. Do you drink uh -oh. soda pop? <laughs> Do you drink Mountain Dew or anything I like don't. that? Well, okay. I, I don't say no. Every once in a while, I'll have a Henry Weinhardt's root beer. Okay. Boy, you hit it hard, man. Uh, so I've been experimenting with caffeine this <laughs> summer because in prior years, I've experimented with my rifle shooting with caffeine where I'll go out two, three, four days with no caffeine and look at my groups and they're just absolutely dialed. And then I'll go take a really heavy dose, you know, like a big shot of pour over that my wife makes and I'll go out to the range and it's, it, I don't care how hard I try, it influences my breathing cycle, my heart rate, all that. So I got to thinking, I wonder if this affects my archery shooting also. Man, does it ever. Maybe it's just me. Maybe because I've got a bum liver and stuff, I can't handle caffeine that well. But my groups at 40 yards go from 
two to three inches out to six to eight inches on the mornings when I've drank caffeine. I wonder if other people have that problem or if it's just me. Man. I uh, I don't know. That's, that's interesting, though. I mean, it, you would think that it would uh, add a little bit, but... Yeah. That's uh, an interesting experiment. Yeah, I mean, when you're out there at 40 yards, you really amplify every little sh- wiggle, shake, you know, the strength of what it takes to hold perfectly still. You really notice it at 40 yards more than you do at 20. And so that's why I yeah. use 40 yards as kind of my my testing distance. And uh, like I said, maybe it's just me who can't can't get rid of the caffeine buzz very quickly. But on our way to Nevada here, I told the crew, I said, if you guys see me drinking coffee in the morning, grab it away from me like you're my parent or something because I, (laughs) (laughs) based on how it is affecting me when I'm shooting groups each morning out in my archery range, I don't need to have the adrenaline rush of a buck there in front of me along with a dose of caffeine. I may as well just throw rocks at it, I think, at that point. So. Uh, so that that's kind of been my experiment for the last five or six weeks is just seeing how that affects me and and i i knew it did rifle shooting i've known that for years because i i used to do test it so much that i don't even uh if i know i'm going shooting i stop caffeine two three days before i even go out rifle shooting but now i'm just gonna have to fall off the caffeine wagon even in archery season that is interesting. Yeah. Well, that's probably a good plan anyway. Yeah, probably. <laughs> but if I elim- if I eliminate caffeine, though, you know what happens then? I've eliminated one good excuse. That's true. <laughs> I, you still have you gotta be careful you. when you You're come good. up with all these refinements and all these. Well, that's true. Yeah, as long as I have camera guys, and now that I have two of them with me, I have twice as many excuses if something goes snare wire. So, uh It'll be interesting to report in here in about 10 days, give you the update, how many deer they scared off and stuff like that, how many shots they missed. You know, yep. Usually what happens is I, I'm I'm at full draw, perfect shot, and I'm looking at them like, are you on them? And they never reply to me. <laughs> and in our world, you know, if you don't get it on camera, it didn't happen. That's so right. finally, by the time I, I yell at them, are you on them? And they're like, well, yeah, I've been on them the whole time. Well, now the deer's 55 yards away walking away. Well, now not quite that bad. <laughs> Poor camera guys. Good thing they get paid a lot. Uh, both of them, I just said good thing they get paid a lot. They both looked at each other when I said that, like, is he talking about us? <laughs> <laughs> Oops, that, that one might have just cost me some money there, Corey. <laughs> Oh. oh, well. Well, you think we've kept them long enough for today? I really appreciate you taking the time to tell all your your secrets about early season elk hunting. I think that's – I learned a lot there. No, I'm, a, I'm excited to, uh, to put it to use myself, and hopefully – you know, I think a lot of people are a little – apprehensive to hunt during that early season and sometimes you're forced into it uh, sometimes you have time off you know labor day hits a little later this year but sometimes labor day weekend falls during that august 30th through september 2nd or third time frame and 
you know, whatever reason it is that you find yourself out in elk country, uh, no need to be discouraged because it can, like I said, it can be frustrating, but it can also be uh, really good. Yeah. Well, you've got a lot of bulls to to back up your statement there. I don't, so I'm going with what Corey says. So, or I could make something up, but the, <laughs> the audience would know I'm making it up. So, uh, well, Corey, I'll uh, I'm probably going to lose you here coverage wise. We're we're getting close to the potato fields, you know. Uh, there, there's not much in the way of coverage out here in potato country in Idaho. So, uh, my my setup. If you could see me, I'm sitting here with my computer plugged in. I'm using my phone as a hotspot, and uh, hopefully this works. What if we just spent the last hour hour and a half and it didn't work? Man, I was gonna say it's it's coming through pretty clear on my end. So. Your system seems to be working. Well, I just hope that everyone's not hearing the turbo kick in on this Ford Raptor every 30 seconds. When <laughs> when Dale drives, you feel like you're in an amusement park ride, man. You get whiplash, like, woo, woo. Every time he goes to pass somebody, it's like, dang. But I can't imagine how fast he drives in his rig. He's driving 82 miles an hour in my rig. <laughs> Jeez. That's the fastest this truck has ever went. Uh, I've, I've oh, ridden wow. with you, so I can attest to that probably being the, being the case. <laughs> you're pretty polite uh, in saying that, Corey. I know what you're thinking. Yeah, If you were doing the podcast by yourself, it'd be something to the effect of, if you ever want to get irritated, ride with Newberg when you're in a hurry to get somewhere. So, yep, I'd be right. Yeah, I don't know. I just I've never been someone who drives fast. So. Yeah, I, I, for, but, for my aggressive style of elk hunting, uh, I want to get to the spot where we can bugle. And sometimes uh, when Randy drives, I have to be a little more patient. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I'll remember <laughs> that next time. I'll step on it. I'll I'll do the speed limit. How's that? Well, I know why you're driving slow, because you're looking for grouse along the edge of the road, so. And now you ratted me out, damn it. But, <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> uh, well, have a, well, have a good time in Nevada, and good luck on your mule deer hunt. And we'll, uh, well, I'm thank sure you. we'll be touching base here and, and checking in on elk season as it progresses as well. Sounds great. Thanks, Corey. Thanks, everyone, for being here. Hope you're healthy, happy, and I hope you have an elk tag in your pocket. And you're going to take what Corey just told you, and you're going to go out opening weekend and put an arrow in a big bull elk, right? That's right. All right. That's what I hope as well. All right, folks. Take care.